we continue our time in this gospel. And we turn our attention to the 11th chapter, verse 16. Once again, God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Matthew eleven sixteen. But to what shall I compare this generation, Jesus says? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we come once again before your word asking, that you, by your Spirit, would enlighten our minds to these eternal truths, that we may receive your word in love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace is easy to understand and yet hard to accept. Message of grace, easy enough, it's simple to understand, but it is hard to accept. Our hearts, apart from the work of God, bristle at the message of grace. But those who have, given, who have been given eyes to see rejoice in grace. They live by grace because they know, as they are told, that they are more sinful than they ever could have imagined. And yet grace and salvation are freer than they ever could have hoped. There is always more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. In springtime at our house, don't know what it's like uh, for you all, but we tend to all get a little bit stuffed up. The kids get frustrated with stuffy noses, especially at bedtime, asking for Kleenexes. Dad is a little bit bad with that too. I tend to get stuffed up. I was very thankful uh, yes, uh, last week, Easter, the lilies didn't bother me at all, so maybe the Lord is giving me less of a, of a Lily's allergy for our uh, Easter service together. Um, and so ha- so we, we all tend to get these spring allergies. We react to these things because uh, there's something in a plant or an animal or something else that our bodies don't like, up, like, and so these defense mechanisms go up to protect the body. Jesus is teaching us in this passage about a spiritual allergy that we have in our natural fleshly state. 
our sinful and fallen state, and it is an allergy to grace. We see it uh, here as Jesus speaks of this generation that rejects John the Baptist and has and will or will reject him, will reject Jesus. And from this, we see the two main tenets of grace that are placed before us, that again, we are worse than we ever could have imagined. And yet there has been a Savior given to us who is better than we ever could have dreamed. So here's our central theme this morning. As we see the mighty works of God in Christ, we are changed to overcome our grace allergy by practicing humble repentance and living with gutsy faith. As we see the mighty works of God in Christ, we are changed to overcome our grace allergy to practice humble repentance and gutsy faith. God changes his people from childish snits to having childlike surrender. He changes us from childish snits to having childlike surrender. First then, this example that Jesus uses of snitty children. In the previous passage, there's been this resistance to accept John the Baptist. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, the idea there is that not everyone has ears to hear or eyes to see either Christ or the message of of John. To what shall he compare this generation? And that has a, a broad spiritual application, perhaps. It, is, it can be um, used today that we, uh, apart from the transforming grace of God, have the, the same problems that plagued that generation, the generation of this world. And Jesus uses this fascinating example. Children who are refusing to play the game, right? We played the flute. You did not want to play. You did not want to dance. We sang a dirge. We did not mourn. It's a happy game and a sad game. Back then, as it is now, what do children do? They see adults doing things and they want to, they want to pretend. They want to play pretend. Let's play house. Well, the two games here are wedding and funeral. The two main reasons people would get together in large groups in the world at that time. Weddings and funerals. So these are the two games Jesus is speaking about, children in the marketplace. And kids who want to play are calling out to other kids. And the other kids are saying, no, we don't want to play. We don't want to play the wedding game. We don't want to play the funeral game. What's going on here? There are many things we love about children, but Jesus here is pointing out something that is not commendable in children, their childishness, their snittiness. You know what what we mean by that? Persistently disagreeable. Nothing is good enough. This is the proverbial taking the ball and going home, not wanting to be a part of the game because something isn't going their way. We need to teach children about these kinds of things. Uh, Something isn't going their way. What do they do? They quit. We do have a lot of playing wedding in our house, especially with the two older ones. It won't surprise you to know and to learn that sometimes this sort of thing happens. They can't agree to the terms of the game. What do the two oldest girls disagree about? Who's the bride and who's the groom? And if they can't come to an agreement about it, they don't play. They say, I don't want to play because I don't want to be the groom, right? That's what they're always arguing about. Dad steps in, I'll be the groom. I'll take the the kiss. But again, they don't want to play. It's perhaps fallen out of vogue. Seems like children today don't play funeral, apparently, as much as they did back then. Maybe the Smiths kids played funeral, I don't know. 
Everyone wants to be a wedding planner. No one wants to be a funeral director, right? So how does this connect to John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the funeral. Jesus is the wedding. It's really quite a brilliant illustration that has a lot of of depth. It is so wonderful when you see what Jesus is doing. John came neither eating nor drinking. They say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John the Baptist was largely rejected. Why? His message was too harsh. Surely I am not as bad as this man says I am. What was John the Baptist preaching? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, calling out to Israelite people, you need to repent of your sins. And you need to seek God's mercy and grace. It was too harsh. That guy's crazy. He lives out in the wilderness. Look at his clothes. Listen to his message. Too harsh, too much. Jesus was being rejected and ends up being largely rejected. Why? Because his message of free forgiveness was being held out to all, even to the tax collectors and the sinners. That's how this illustration is being used. Now connect this example to our hearts because this is the issue. This is that grace allergy that we have. Jesus is exposing the exact problem of our hearts outside of the transforming grace of God. We simultaneously, in our flesh, think that John the Baptist cannot be right, we don't need that message, and that we don't need Jesus, or that Jesus simply or surely could not save those who are below us on the moral totem pole, the tax collectors of our culture. We say John the Baptist is unnecessary, a harsh message of total repentance, that we are worse than we think and worse than we ever could have imagined, and we think that Jesus is impossible. Surely salvation can't be that free. Surely salvation can't be that far-reaching into the bottom of the barrel of society, but that is precisely what grace is, and that is precisely what grace does. Grace tells us that we are desperately wicked and desperately in need of a Savior. And grace also tells us that there is a Savior, a mediator, who has done all that needs to be done for us to be set right with God for now and for eternity. All we must do is what? Come to Him in reliance and trust, and repentance. You see, we want control of our spiritual lives in our fleshly state. And we resist relinquishing control. We, we are like children who uh, become snitty when things don't go their way. What is it about? It's about control, isn't it? They want to be in control of the game, of the terms of the game. And so when things don't go their way, they quit. Jesus is saying, there, I set the terms of salvation and grace And you are to submit to me. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Grace is the product of God's wisdom. From all eternity, God decreeing that salvation would happen this way, in a way that is not like how we may have designed it in our own worldly human wisdom. And so whatever God does is wise. And whatever Jesus declares is wise and is the because he is the personification of the wisdom of God. Those who wish to follow their own sense of things, God and I will work it out in the end. How often do you hear that? Right? You have an opportunity to maybe 
share your faith or what grace is all about. Well, God and I will work it out in the end. How, how often do you hear that? Or surely God does not mind that I just want to live my life the way I want to. What have those people who say that, what have they done? They've rejected what? The fear of the Lord. They want to set the terms. Jesus says, I set the terms. Proverbs 1, what is it? You don't listen to wisdom. God says, I hold out my wisdom to you. You do not heed that call. You do not embrace the fear of the Lord, so I will laugh at your calamity. Right? Wisdom laughs at those who do not heed the call of this great God. So part of being a Christian is to submit to God's authority to reveal himself to us and his character and salvation. God sets the terms, and we live according to those things. Whoever listens to me, Proverbs 133, will dwell secure and will be at ease. Here we hear, you can hear echoes almost of Jesus' words as he's before Pilate. Whoever is on the side of truth listens to me. Do you listen to God's wisdom? Do you let him set the terms for salvation, for grace? Are you allergic to grace? Have some inner honesty with yourself. What happens when you hear that you're actually worse than you think and that you desperately need a savior? Are you spiritually snitty? disagreeable to justice and mercy? Do you say, surely God's justice is not as harsh as John the Baptist would have made it seem? And do you also say, surely God did not need to go to all of that to send Jesus Christ to save me? Surely we could have been set right with God without all of that. When you say that, you're not willing to play the game that God has revealed to us in the gospel, the game of grace. But he calls us then to two things, humble repentance and gutsy faith. Humble repentance and gutsy faith. What does it boil down to? Well, Jesus tells us there in the second part of our passage, God wants repentance, not performance. God wants repentance, not performance. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What is the response that God wants, that Jesus wanted from the people who saw his mighty deeds? Repentance. That's what he wanted. It's a fascinating look into the heart of God, isn't it? Performance is not sacrifice or service or worship. Performance is thinking you do something, you add something to increase your standing with God or to improve your standing with God. Or you yourself overcome your sin and separation from God by your good works or good life. Jesus wanted repentance. What is repentance? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner, truly sensing his own sin and understanding God's mercy in Christ, does, while grieving over his sin and hating his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's a giving up unto God. It's a turning from yourself to the God who is merciful and gracious in Jesus Christ. It is to hear the words of John the Baptist and say, he is right about who I am. 
How many people rejected his message? And they would say, too harsh. It is to hear someone say, you are more sinful than you ever could have imagined, and to say, he is right about me. He is right about who I am. I am that desperately wicked. I am that hopeless in myself. If we are perhaps willing to accept the truth of our sinfulness, what is our second well, what is our reaction to that? Okay, I am desperately wicked, so what is our fleshly reaction? To perform our way out of it, isn't it? You get into a corner and you say, okay, now what can I do? Sort of reposition myself to change my situation? That's not true repentance, is it? It's a giving up unto God. We are so tempted to think that if we just brush ourselves up a little bit, then we come to God. Then we will repent because we don't want to come to him in the full knowledge and recognition of how filthy we are in our sinfulness. That's what the flesh does. We're allergic to grace outside of the transforming work of God. God will be more impressed with me if I just make some improvement. How does that wonderful hymn of confession go? If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. In the next verse, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Look at the glory of repentance that Jesus gives to us. Jesus says that even Sodom would have been spared for their repentance. The, the quintessential city of sinfulness in the scriptures. And Jesus says, if the mighty works done in these cities would have been done there, Sodom would have been spared for their repentance. That's what God wants. We can't brush ourselves up. We can't make any improvements to our standing with God. He wants us to come to him, to turn from our sins, and to look to the Savior that he has provided for us. That's grace. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves condemnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Have you thought about that? The Savior is truly as glorious as that. He truly can save any and all who come to him. So think about this, brothers and sisters. Have you seen God's mighty works and have you responded to them? These cities that Jesus reproaches did not respond to the mighty works that Jesus had done there. Healing, uh, healing the blind, the sick, the lame. Now perhaps you say, well, if I were to see those mighty works, then I surely would repent. If I were seeing Jesus healing the sick and the blind and the lame, then raising the dead, then I surely would repent of my sin. Here's what I want you to hear, beloved, this morning. What is being proclaimed to you today surpasses what was done in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. For what we have in terms of what Jesus has revealed to us and what he has done and is now proclaimed throughout the world that Jesus Christ the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh, that he lived and he died. He was crucified at Calvary on behalf of sin and sinners, 
that he defeated death and the grave. He has truly risen from the dead. He has, uh, he has vanquished that foe. He has ascended into heaven and he sits at God's right hand in order to intercede for his people so that their standing with God is ever sure and certain. He poured out his spirit upon his people so that we always have his presence, presence with us. These things about Jesus Christ that are proclaimed throughout the world, that is the mighty work of God. And so there is no excuse because you can look and see this Savior whom God has provided so that your standing with God is ever sure and certain. The life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the session of Jesus Christ, there are God's mighty works. And so it confronts us, doesn't it? Because we're in the same situation as those in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Have you repented? If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. You fondly dream of that time. You can come before God and he would be impressed with you. It doesn't happen. He wants repentance and not your performance. At no point in your spiritual life will there be anything that is merited by you. It will always be by grace. Even the good works that God produces in us, which is an enormous part of the Christian life, and we are called to be zealous for good works, and we are called God's workmanship. But how does that come about? It comes about by God's grace. So we are redeemed by grace, and then we live by grace. John Newton says this, Grace sustains the bruised reed, it binds up the broken heart, cherishes the smoking flax into a flame. Grace restores the soul when wandering, it revives it when fainting, it heals it when wounded, it upholds it when ready to fall, it teaches it to fight, it goes before it to battle, and at last makes it more than conqueror over all opposition and then bestows a crown of everlasting life. Your whole Christian life is lived by grace. Maybe there's a flower that you really like but you're allergic to it so you can't have it in your house. Imagine that allergy was taken away, and then when it blooms in the spring, you could have several pots of this flower, and the aroma of that flower would just fill your home. Because of the gospel of grace, God transforms you to no longer be allergic to this message that you truly are that desperately wicked, and that Jesus is that gloriously free, and it's to fill your heart and your life and your home with this sweet aroma of grace, and you live by it day by day, moment by moment. That's what we're called to do. Humble repentance and then gutsy faith. Gutsy faith is the other side of grace. So as we close, what is gutsy faith? Once God overcomes this spiritual allergy that we have, we must have a gutsiness of faith that believes Jesus is really truly as glorious as he receives himself to, as he reveals himself to be. If John the Baptist is the funeral, then Jesus really does have to be the wedding. We do rejoice at the glories of free salvation in Jesus Christ. By grace we are saved, grace free and boundless. There is no boundary to God's grace to those who come to him in repentance. So what does gutsy faith look like? It means that we understand that we stand in grace, we live by grace day after day. That which used to set off our allergies can freely reign in our home and in our heart and in our life. Gutsy faith says when Satan accuses us, right, we, we're, not, we're not ignorant of his schemes. What does he do? You're tempted to sin. 
And how was the temptation presented to you? Repentance is easy. God will forgive you. When you're being tempted to sin, what is being played up? The grace and the mercy of God. Sin, because God's grace is boundless. You fall into sin, and then how is it presented to you? God's justice and his harshness are played up. And so you are reminded, and perhaps these thoughts plague you if you have some besetting sin or some bosom sin that you have treasured in your heart. And perhaps these thoughts plague you because he says, the, the, the enemy would say to you, how can you be truly a child of God? You are rebellious. You are stubborn. You are resistant to grace. You are blind to who Christ is. You have spat on him. You have turned from him again. You are foolish and ignorant and stupid. We've had those thoughts, right? What do you say to it in response? What's gutsy faith? Gutsy faith says, I am all of those things and much more. What of it? Why are you speaking to me about myself? Because my confidence is not in myself. My confidence is in the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mediator that God has provided for me. So you're talking to me about myself when there is that, that, that is useless because that's not where my confidence lies. I do not trust in myself. My faith is not in myself to reconcile me to God. It is in the Savior whom God has provided for me. Don't talk to me about myself. No one's confidence is there. That's gutsy faith. That Jesus truly is as glorious and his salvation truly is as far-reaching as he has revealed himself to be. That's the other side of grace. Yeah, John the Baptist is right about me. I need to repent and have faith in the mercy of God. But Jesus is as glorious as he showed himself to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Grace begins with a funeral, but it ends with a wedding. And God transforms his people to go from childish snits to childlike surrender. What do young children do that we love so much? They come to you and they just hold out their hands. What is it? It's total surrender. A young child just learning to walk or a little toddler walking around, they go to their mommy or their daddy and they put their arms up and it's total surrender. What are they saying? They're saying, I, I, I don't have the strength or the ability or the knowledge to take care of myself. Pick me up and hold me because I need you. That's why Jesus uses that illustration and example. Because children are so great at showing us total surrender. But that's what God does by the power of his gospel. That's what this passage does for us. We understand that we fall under this, this examination of this generation by Jesus. In our fleshly state, outside of the gospel of grace, we are these childish snits. Saying John the Baptist can't be right, Jesus can't be true. We allow God's wisdom to enter into our hearts and our lives. We leave our own fleshly wisdom. We say God is right about us, but he's provided the Savior who is truly as glorious as Jesus said himself to be. So come to him in repentance and faith and live by grace. Live by grace each and every day. And if you do so, God will change you. He will transform your heart from being spiritually snitty to showing spiritual surrender. For all who come to Jesus are like children 
We give thanks for our covenant theology. We give thanks for the blessing of seeing uh, baptism this morning and being reminded of our children being included in, in the covenant people of God. And what a glorious thing. And that's such a beautiful picture to us. How are we to come to Christ? Arms up of surrender. May we do so by the grace and the power of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.